Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham, coming at you nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. I will apologize for my voice off the top. I've been a little hoarse the past few days and uh, trying to get over it. I feel good. I just sound a little strange, a little different than normal, so I will apologize for that. Uh, but despite the way I sound, we have a terrific episode for you today, uh, trying something different in the way we recorded, uh, but given what the subject matter was, we really wanted to make sure we had a chance to talk to Daniel Savan, one of the directors and editors of the Oslo Diaries, a documentary that looks at the Oslo peace accords between the Palestinians and the Israelis during the 1990s. I had the opportunity to watch this film prior to talking to Daniel. It's a, a very interesting documentary. We get into why they did it the way they did it. There's uh, some some methods that are used in the documentary that are very different from traditional documentaries. And it really leads to a, uh, a unique feel to this particular film. And if you're in the greater Toronto area, it is screening on Tuesday, May the 1st at 9 p.m. at the Tiff Bell Lightbox number one, and the following afternoon, Wednesday, May the 2nd, at the Isabel Bader Theater in Toronto. So we encourage you to check those out because it is a unique documentary, and uh, it it the way in which it is executed is really fantastic. I very much enjoyed it. So I would encourage you all to check it out. So the way we recorded this one is a little different than we normally record long distance one. Daniel is still in Israel. He's coming over to Toronto for those screenings, but he was still in Israel when I got the chance to speak with him. We recorded through WhatsApp, which we've never done before. So there's a bit of a delay. Uh, I tried to edit it out as much as we could, but there is a tiny bit of a delay there. And the audio is going to be a little different from what you may be used to when we've done it via Skype. But, but the content, I think, is really terrific. I very much enjoyed it talking with Daniel. So here it is, my conversation with director of the Oslo Diaries, Daniel Savan. So Daniel, let's start with, first of all, the, the motivation for this film. This is a story, the Oslo uh, Accords, that... I think, you know, certainly obviously a very big story around the world at, at the time, but something that since their collapse, I'm not sure if it's gotten that much attention, at least in North America. So I'm wondering for the two of you, what was the motivation coming to this story to create this film that profiles such a, a high profile and contentious, but also hopeful time in the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict? So first of all, it's the whole issue with making a film about the peace process, which is the most tedious, frustrating, um, almost taboo kind of subject for, for filmmaking. I mean, nobody wants to do a film about a failed peace process that has been failing for the past 50 years. And really, when we approached it, um, it started with us saying, wow, there's so many films about wars. Even, you know, we were at Hot Dogs, I think it was two years ago or three years ago now, um, with Censored Voices, which is a film we did about the 67 war. And we've done so many films about wars and about the conflict, but none of them were about how to resolve it. And when I started looking into it, I found out that there were actually no film about the subject. 
Um, so we've decided to really, you know, dive in and just, you know, go into the heart of the darkness and say, okay, so, I mean, it's so simple. Why isn't there peace? And, you know, starting researching this whole subject, uh, we stumbled across the Oslo Accords, which were really like the the center of the center of this conflict. I mean, when you look at Oslo, you really understand how close we were, what we had to give up, um, and of course, you know, why it failed and how really we can do it again. I mean, when you look at Oslo, it's the same today. Like, it's the same concessions, you know, it's all written down. All we need is, you know, for both people to just go ahead and implement it. Right, which certainly that is the core of, I would say, the film, is the reluctance on both sides to implement the accords. Uh, but what I found really interesting in the film was, at the, at the beginning, talking about how uh, both sides didn't actually want to acknowledge that they were even talking to each other, which speaks to how ingrained this conflict is. And obviously it's, it's been, been a very uh, contentious space for a very long time. But in starting the, the discussions, why was it that even talking was such a contentious issue for, for both sides? So really, I mean, when you look back at the 90s, um, and of course, late 80s, uh, the PLO were a terrorist organization that really believed in armed struggle, um, the same as Hamas today. Um, they believed that, you know, in order to free Palestine, um, you know, all, all cards were on the table and, you know, harming uh, innocent civilians is part of the game because they don't have um, a country, they don't have an army. Uh, so they believed in terrorism. Um, Israel, on the other hand, didn't even acknowledge that there was a Palestinian people, uh, that they are Palestinian people. They looked at it as, you know, these were the Jordanian Egyptians that were somehow left behind on this ever Jewish land, and they don't really have rights, or they're not even, you know, a people. Um, so you had these very, very different points of views and, you know, bringing them into this center point of view saying, look, we have here two people, the Jews aren't going away, the Arabs aren't going away, we will have to divide this land or find a way to live on this one land together. And that was a huge gap and a huge leap. And I believe that today still, you know, the the majority of Israelis and Palestinians don't understand that, you know, the, the only way for us to survive is to learn how to live together or to split the land. Right, and we certainly see that during the film is the the, the, the talk on both sides from the public that we see is people saying that how can you recognize the other uh, as, as a legitimate state, which is really quite fascinating uh, to me. But given that that's the the backdrop to this uh, and the contentiousness that exists at the time um, what is the motivation then not only to talk but to take it to Oslo and to do it uh, in such a a place that is so far away from where the conflict is obviously it's out of the eyes of a lot of the press there and the the film does a really good job of talking about the secrecy surrounding it but why Oslo 
just in general. And why are the people who go selected? That was one of the more fascinating aspects to me, is sort of who goes to Oslo. So really on the Israeli side, it was illegal to talk to the Palestinian side, to the PLO. Uh, talking to a member of a PLO uh, was considered treason. You can spend the rest of your life in jail if you are caught talking to the enemy because that's like, you know, selling secrets uh, to, to somebody that is against the state. Um, you, you are basically creating an act of terrorism. Um, so it had to be kept very, very secret. Um, and on the other hand, of course, you know, when you see... General Rabin saying, you know, Arafat is a murderer. If it would have been leaked out that he's negotiating with this murderer and giving him promises, uh, the government would collapse in minutes. Um, and of course, on the Palestinian side, uh, going to your occupiers, to the people who are oppressing you and giving them promises without consulting the whole Arab world, um, that was, of course, reason as well. So the only way it could happen is getting as far as they can from the press, uh, because in the press, both negotiating sides had to constantly say, yes, we are defending our people, we will never surrender, we will never uh, cave in, we can't be bought, uh, you know, like, you know, statements in the press. Um, and they took it as far away from the press and from the public as they can. And then they did a very, very courageous and almost impossible decision. They said, we are not going to talk about the past or about the present. Because in the present, you had people being oppressed, people being occupied, uh, a lot of terror attacks, uh, you know, against civilians in Israel. And of course, you have behind that the backdrop of years of years of enmity. And they decided just not to talk about it and just talk about the future, meaning we are not going to talk about our pain and about what's going on now and how hideous it is, but how we are going to solve it and how we are going to, to learn how to live together. Um, and this is a very interesting kind of perspective saying we are not going to reconcile, we are not going to forgive each other, we are not going to be friends. We are just going to think about how is it possible to move forward, what our kids are going to, what, what kind of reality are we going to create for our children. Um, and basically they started this negotiation and throughout this negotiation, which went on for a long while, they started knowing each other and you know they actually became very good friends and once you become a friend with your counterpartner with your other side you say hey this guy his mission in life isn't to blow up a bus in tel aviv or this guy uh, isn't on this earth just in order to harass me and oppress me in the checkpoints but he actually wants to live in peace with me and they started trusting each other and this crazy leap of faith um, really affected both the negotiators and the leaders, but it did not affect the public because the public were kept out and they didn't learn how to trust each other. They just, you know, one day were just bombarded with this decision saying, oh, we've decided to live in peace. And people had their, you know, restraints. Um, and this is really, for me, this is the biggest tragedy of this story, that if 
uh, and of course, you know, it's it different in Canada. You didn't have a war for a long time. But in Israel and in Palestine, each time you have a war, everybody, you know, volunteers. Everybody is one big happy family. Like the people in Gaza, they can be bombed from the air by the Israeli artillery um, and, you know, and, and airplanes. Um, but everybody stands shoulder to shoulder and they say we will never surrender and we will never cave in and we can fight till the death. And Israelis can have buses blown up in Tel Aviv or rockets fired, um, you know, on the road and, you know, things exploding and people dying and people getting stabbed. But people, you know, stand shoulder to shoulder and say, you know, we will never give in and Israel will stand forever. But when you are talking about peace, the minute you have a small suicide bombing or a terrorist attack or you have oppression going on in the West Bank and in Gaza, you know, it, in, in a matter of minutes, people say, oh, this peace, that's, that's not working. Let's just give it up. We, we can't pay this huge price for peace and, you know, let's go back to fighting. And that's for me the biggest tragedy and absurdity that, you know, the public itself didn't endure, didn't say, you know, we must give this negotiation a chance, we must give this process a chance. But they just went back to, you know, the only things that they really know, which is, you know, let's keep bombing each other. Yeah, and that's what really stood out to me when I was watching it. it it's like for so long, the two sides uh, and the leadership on the two sides demonized the other. And then here we have a situation where some of those leaders are, like you say, almost, I think it says it in, in the film, to humanizing each other uh, in the negotiations. One of my favorite parts is, is one of the uh, Americans who's there who talks about how after a very tense negotiation, the whole group just sort of sat around and had coffee. And, and that's when you talk about your kids or, or whatever, like your, your, your common interest and you dehumanize and you humanize each other. But like you say, the public doesn't have that opportunity. And then you turn on the TV and you just see the prime minister with Yasser Arafat, uh, you know, in the Rose Garden in the United States and shaking hands. And what is this? And I think you're you're right to say that the public doesn't get enough of a voice in this or enough warning that all of a sudden this is going to happen. And that's where it seems to me that resistance really comes from. Uh, and as a result, it kind of drags down the whole process, which which sort of leads me to the question of for you as a filmmaker, then do you treat this story as, almost being being wistful as as maybe hoping that it could have been more successful are you are you sad about it or like what is the the approach that you take to tell this story then so you know i i have to tell you like as an israeli making films in israel raising a family in israel past really doesn't interest me i'm i'm looking only at the future and when I'm looking at this film, this is not a, a historic film that, you know, is intended for people to watch it and say, oh, how interesting. This is really fascinating. For me, this is a call for action. For me, this is really a, a, a mirror that reflects us this alternative reality saying, look, Oslo wasn't this 
a terrible fiasco as Israelis and Palestinians look at it. I mean, most Israelis and Palestinians, ironically alike, say that Oslo is the worst thing that ever happened. It's the worst thing that happened to Israel. It's the worst thing that happened to the occupied territories. It's the worst thing that happened um, to Palestine. And this is crazy. I mean, the Palestinians look at it as the ultimate prolongation of the Israeli occupation. It killed the Intifada. Um, you know, it, it made this process go on and on and, you know, without any results. The Israelis see it as, you know, the uprising and the, the giving birth to the massive Palestinian terrorism. And I'm looking at history as something else. I'm, I'm looking at it as, you know, damn it, we were really close. We almost did it. And there is no reason why we shouldn't do it again. I mean, when you're looking at at Rabin and Arafat, I, I really can't imagine any duo that is more hateful for each other than them. They really hated each other for 50 years. And, you know, this is not something that Netanyahu and the Hamas can do today. It is just a matter of the people demanding it. Um, but sadly, I think on both sides, not enough people are ready to say, this is my one and only demand from our leader, just make peace. Um, I think people definitely in Israel um, would rather just not think about it and talk about other issues. Yeah, and that relationship certainly takes to me, speaks to the core of what this, this film is all about. And then uh, obviously the assassination and sort of the, the, the very, I don't know if it's ironic or whatever, uh, sort of the, 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 the environment in which Rebin was killed um, at that big rally for peace and how that sort of, to me, really sort of centers, that's sort of emblematic of the whole process in, in, a, in a way. Uh, and, and I have to say, I, I, not to give away the movie at all, but I really like the way that you, all, you put that in or the way it was addressed in the film and how it represented this turning point uh, in more than one way. So uh, I, I think that was really uh, addressed in a very, very interesting way. Similarly, uh, I, I found it very interesting the way in which you used the the words of the people who are participating so you're using people in their own words and recreating them uh, so just in a, a practical sense um, how did you go about selecting the dialogue that was used given that this is obviously very contentious and the way I think you all framed it was very very good but how do you go about selecting the dialogue and then ensuring that it is read uh, in a way that is true to the people who wrote those words? So really, I mean, you know, we, we were looking for the human aspect because once you do a film about the peace process, you know, the, the immediate reaction, I guess also, you know, for everybody that's going to see it in the catalog, um, is going to say, oh my God, it's a film about... A peace negotiation that's super bureaucratic, um, <laughs> it's probably just, you know, the most boring film I'll ever see. Um, so for us, it was really, I mean, you know, taking this very bureaucratic event and turning it into a thriller. So 
we wanted, you know, the the really juicy insights of people that were there, but won't talk to us about paragraphs and figures and annexes, um, but really about the emotions. I mean, how is it to go to a secret negotiation and how is it to really, uh, you know, start fighting alongside your enemy um, in order to achieve this peace? Um, and all we did is, you know, go through all of the journals of all of the people of both sides and really, you know, everybody cooperated fantastically, you know, allowing us to read their journals and to publish them and really looking for, for anything that, you know, stroke some kind of emotion with us. And, you know, for me, it's really, I, I, I hate documentaries that make you look at something from the outside. I mean, I'm, I'm never into uh, making you watch and, you know, nod your head and saying, oh, yes, uh, Churchill did these mistakes. It's very interesting. But for me, it's really about what would you do? What, what would you do sitting in their seats? And I really tried making people, you know, sit in inside of the negotiating room and, you know, try to tackle the same the same dilemmas that they did. So to that end, one of the things that I found interesting, I didn't realize this either watching the film, but uh, I pulled up a Hollywood Reporter review that you recreated some of the the images. So there were actors to some of the on-camera stuff that were hired in order to recreate this. Is that right that the, some of this footage was recreated for the film particularly? Yeah, I mean, that's that's my favorite part, basically, of the <laughs> making of it. So really, I mean, as, as archives buffs, we've done so many films about archives. And then we get to this secret negotiation in which so little was filmed because it's a secret negotiation. I mean, no way that in the most heated moments you can bring in a camera because, you know, any material that could have leaked uh, would be basically a death sentence over these people. So we started thinking about how can we portray these journals because the words are fantastic, the dialogues are fantastic, the archives are fantastic, but, you know, we don't want these illustrations that are going to portray just, you know, a snowy atmosphere in general, um, Oslo, or showing the fireplace again and again, <laughs> or, you know, having people talk over maps and stuff like that. And we really started thinking about how to do it. And one of our inspirations actually was uh, Sarah Pauli, um, that did, you know, the stories we tell, which was fantastic. It was just the best recreation we have ever seen of how to recreate an archive and really understand the very special cinematography of it and the very special atmosphere that, that how do you shoot, shoot an archive? Um, definitely from the 90s. And after researching just the, the visual aspect of it, we really brought to Oslo, um, it was actually not shot in Oslo, it was shot in <laughs> Kiev, and we brought Palestinians and Israelis that never met, um, and they actually recreated the whole atmosphere because they started up with quite a lot of suspicions and not, you know, quite a lot of enmity. Um, it wasn't shot in the most peaceful times for Israel and Palestine. It wasn't easy 
to get the Palestinians visas in order to get there. Mm-hmm. And you have these Israelis and Palestinians going through the same process of getting to know each other. And it was fantastic because, you know, when the, when the filming ended, it ended up with really these people becoming friends. And, and for me, that was really emotional because it was really showing that, you know, take a group of people, put them in a snowy villa in the middle of nowhere, make them collaborate, and they will get to know each other. And once you know each other, you see that, you know, <laughs> nobody here is the enemy. And we all just, are, you know, basically the same. We all just want to have a good, peaceful life. But it can't happen when, you know, one people is occupying another people. This is just, you know, impossible. Right. So I guess, yeah, being in the snow and being cold, I guess that's the, that's the key. Um, <laughs> but... What's remarkable, Look, then, you know, everybody in Montreal would be really, really happy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what's remarkable about it is that the actors really look like, in a few cases, the people who they're portraying. Uh, and so much show that, you know, when you see footage of the events, say, you know, in, in the United States or, or some of the signing ceremonies, that, you know, it's almost hard to tell sort of the real footage versus the recreated footage. Uh, so, uh, you know, how did you find these people who look so much like those people who they're portraying? The casting must have been uh, a big challenge. Yeah, casting was terrible. Um, <laughs> it was just, it went on forever. And, you know, we were looking for lookalikes. We didn't look for actors. So, mm. you know, we had to just grab these people off the street <laughs> saying, oh, you know, somebody recommended you on Facebook that you might look like this politician and you know i know you are not an actor but you know you must participate in my documentary all you need to do is go to kiev for a week and uh, so that was really funny yeah all you have to do is go to kiev in the middle of the winter yeah <laughs> that seems like a, a hard sell for some people i would think yeah yeah, yeah. um no, it was <laughs> yeah but but then at the same time it's the, the the film has the has interviews with some of these actors uh, or excuse me, not the actors, the no, actual, no, the no. actual people. Um, no, yeah, the yeah. actual people, and we have like tons of never before seen footage. Um, right. You know, the cutting between them. For me, this is like this. That's my kick out of the film. I mean, you know, on a cinematic level, I like it when, you know, you play with a genre. When you, you, you know, the the thing is really how to convey a journal. You know, how to convey a diary. And because everything is so subjective, I mean, and the diaries themselves are subjective. And for me, it's never about, you know, going to a very strict kind of documentary manner or going to a fictional manner. For me, it's all just one big mess. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the two interviews that really stood out for me were uh, Perez and and Abu Ala. I mean, those two, right, are are obviously central. But were these people at all reluctant to participate in this? Did you have to massage them at all to be able to to get them to openly talk about this? And especially in the way that they do, because, you know, I think the, the, the individuals who are speaking to you here are... I think similar to you, they have a, a perspective of, of hoping and looking forward that this is actually a, a guide map 
Uh, and yet the Oslo Accords at the time failed and, and they weren't actually ever put into place. So, you know, how did the process go to actually get them on camera and to have them be so open and candid with you? I think really for everybody, it's an open wound. I mean, everybody is living this reality and everybody wants to talk about it because it's really, it's no secret. It's just, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's almost a cry for help. I mean, people wanted to tell their story and, you know, if this is, people are so in custom of, you know, just these interviews, blaming them, calling them the Oslo criminals, telling them on the Palestinian side that they have sold out to the Israeli oppressors, telling the Israelis that they have endangered our security. And, you know, for the first time, people are coming to them and telling them, look, I mean, I'm not here to judge you positively or negatively. I just want to hear your story. And people wanted to tell this story. And people, you know, they've they've achieved so much and yet it failed. So it was really, you know, about people just wanting anybody to listen to them. Well, do you think, you say that you're there just to listen to them and not judge them positively or negatively. Uh, I got the sense though that the film does have a point of view um, in that regard. Um, but do you feel as though, and you've ta- you talked about how you know you want to be looking forward and and you know push for peace. Um, but do you feel as though the film takes a uh, makes a judgment on what happened back in the nineties? I mean, the film, of course, is very pro-peace. <laughs> it's very positive. Yes. Um, of course, if somebody else would do this film, I mean, if a, you know, a right-wing Israeli would do this film, I think he would portray the Oslo uh, negotiations as how do you dare, you know, sell out parts of the historic Jewish land if, you know, if uh, somebody very nationalistic Palestinian would say, how can you, you know, sell out the historic Palestine? For us, it was really, you know, our one statement is nobody's going anywhere. The Israelis are not going to evaporate. The Palestinians are not going to just move to different countries. We are all here to stay and we have to find a solution. So that's our very, very, you know, clear point of view. And of course, you know, having to end the occupation is the first step. And then just finally, this is sort of part of a sort of a larger, to me, I mean, perhaps, uh, reimagining of these Oslo Accords because there was the play on Broadway as well. I don't know. Did did you get the chance to see that? Um, Are you aware of that production? Yeah, it was actually a really funny story. Um, The the people who were, I don't remember if it was the actors of it or some of the writers, um, but they called us up and told us, oh, we're doing this film about, sorry, not a film, we're doing this play about Oslo and, you know, you met all these people in real life, so maybe you can tell us about it. And more actually put in touch Zinger and the guy who played him. And, you know, it, it went along and 
suddenly we heard that, you know, it's this great, beautiful hit on Broadway. And then they won the Tony, which was fantastic. <laughs> and sadly, each time I was in New York, I just missed it. So I'm wow. dying to see the play. Yeah, it got obviously amazing reviews. And, and yeah, like you say, it won the Tony. And, and certainly what you've done is very different from what they did. Obviously, theirs is a complete dramatization of, of this event. But it, it strikes me as, and obviously you would know better being in Israel, uh, is, is there more interest now in Oslo as there's there's renewed hope at least from my perspective there's renewed hope in the peace process is Oslo sort of coming up increasingly as like you say maybe a missed opportunity or or a really good example of of coming together is is that why this is you know you you take these two things that that have been very well received uh, about Oslo is it part of that that we're trying to reimagine the way we can do peace I mean, I wish I could say yes, but I mean, the situation has really never been so bad. Um, you know, with the whole Trump era and regime, uh, you know, moving his uh, embassy to Jerusalem and, you know, ignoring East Jerusalem completely, uh, you know, Israel and Palestine are in a really all-time low nowadays. Um, I wish this this film and it, in Israel is going to be broadcast as a series on Yes Docu, and I, I really hope it can ignite some kind of debate because the situation is really bad. Right, and like you say, hopefully it does uh, ignite debate and it it provides that guide map for how people can can come together and talk and, and work towards peace. Because, like you say, you know, for you raising a family in Israel, that's really that's what everyone there really deserves is a peaceful life uh, in, in some form. I mean, really, I mean, as an Israeli, I can't talk as a Palestinian, obviously, but as an Israeli, I think the most radical thing you can do today um, is really be optimistic. I mean, people have become so accustomed to the fact that peace keeps failing and we will never achieve peace and it's all too complicated but actually it's it's not um, it's not complicated we have a plan we have a map everybody knows what will be the end of it and the only question is how many people will die before we achieve it i mean obviously we are going to have two states or one state um, it can't just keep going on uh, you know, colonialism is dead. <laughs> it, it won't keep on forever. And each day that we are postponing this, you know, two-state solution or this one-state solution or any kind of solution is just taking its toll on both sides and people are dying. Um, and it's crazy. I mean, you know, if you'll have peace in the end of 2018, you know, you'll have a few dozen people that have died. And if you'll have peace in 50 years, you'll have another few hundred or thousand people who have died. Um, and that's really tragic. I mean, so for me, you know, if this film can really bring peace closer, even in one day, you know, I've, I've done my part. Uh, well, very well said, and and we thank you very much for the time. We hope people go see it for that reason, uh, absolutely. So thank you so much for the time today. Oh, thanks for having me. So there you have it. 
my conversation with Daniel Savan, and I thank him again for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, again, the film is The Oslo Diaries, and if you are in the Greater Toronto Area on Tuesday, May the 1st at 9 p.m. at the TIFF Bell Lightbox Number 1, or Wednesday, May the 2nd, a matinee at 12.30 in the Isabel Bader Theatre. We encourage you to check the film out if you can, uh, if you're in Toronto. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, HistorySlam at gmail.com, Twitter at Dr. Shawnee Fever, and if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.